Hey everybody, this is Dave Broadback. I'm coming to you live. Well, it's live right now. It's recorded for you. But coming to you uh, from what I have often called my podcast studio, which is actually uh, my daughter's bedroom, old bedroom. Anyway, uh, the lecture you're about to hear is for Psychology 3196, Human Evolutionary Psychology. So today, I'm going to talk about consciousness, and then I hope you got that email where we talk a bit about motivation and emotion. I don't know why that got left off the syllabus. It is on the downloadable notes. It's weird that it's on the syllabus. I, I, it's obviously a mistake on my mind. So we'll talk mostly today about consciousness. We'll use the other stuff. It's okay. There's just space. Don't worry. And I start out here by saying, uh-oh. I don't like the word consciousness very much. And part of the reason I don't like it is because I don't know what it is. I can't measure it. I can't touch it. I'm a scientist. And I, I just don't know what it is. I know we all know what it is, but I don't know. Hell, I can't prove your conscience. You can't prove my answer. For all I know, I'm the only conscious person in here, and you're all mindless automatons. Very well programmed. I can't prove that that wasn't meant to be a slam at anyone, because you couldn't prove anybody. Same thing with you. So Joey might be the only person in this room who's actually conscious, and the rest of us are mindless automatons. Okay? So I don't know what it is. That's so. This makes me uncomfortable talking about it. When I teach intro, which I've done a very long time, um, because I think I scare them away, but I think I spend like 20 minutes on the consciousness chapter. It's like, yeah, there's a chapter there on consciousness, read it, it's about sleep and stuff. Next! Um, I just don't know what it means, and I don't like that. I guess there's stuff we can talk about. We talk about automatic processing, so stuff that's done... without any cognitive effort. I can walk without having to think about it. It just happens. I could catch a baseball if it's moving slowly enough um, without having to think, I will now raise my glove to catch the ball. Breathing, I think, is a nice one. No, and the nice thing about breathing is you can have sort of control over it, but you can also not care about it, and it still happens. You can decide to breathe deeply once, or you can decide to hold your breath, but you also can just, you just breathe. Um, there's a lot of things, though, that are automatic. There are, you can learn, right? Your ability to read those words just happens. Right? Most of us in here, if this is our first language or we speak English well enough, that it just happens. You don't have to sound out those words. I think what they mean, they just, it just happens. It's automatic process. Right? Six centuries, 18. Like, that's automatic. I just know that. It takes literally no... effort, no cognitive resources that I'm aware of. It must take some. But... It takes no effort for me to solve that. What's six times three? 
um, we can think about our sleep cycle. So you can be asleep and you can be awake. Different stages, the REM sleep. Oh, well, you can think about that. those things. Those are sensible enough things to think about. So that's stuff we can talk about. Uh, we can talk about self-awareness. This is where it gets a little bit more complicated. I know I'm me, and that the, there's, there's a universe that is outside of me. That's a harder thing to get your head around, though we know that's a thing. Right? So some of these things are going to be a lot harder to measure than the others. We can measure these. It's hard to measure self-awareness. Right? We know it exists, but it's a tough thing. And measurement is something scientists do. Science a lot of it's about just prediction and control. And it's hard to predict and control variables when I can't measure them. It's very difficult. Okay? Questions so far? So you see why it's, I, I just I get a little uncomfortable talking about this stuff. And I think most psychologists do. Philosophers love crap like this because they don't have to measure or control or predict. No, serious, they love this stuff. And that's great. The problem is they don't have to do experiments. Well, that's a well-reasoned argument. Way to go. Do you have any data? That's the problem. By the way, I think philosophy is great. Educated people should take some. What I'm saying is that it's a different approach to how to find the truth. Is what I'm saying. It's lazier. Um, it's a little joke. It's a little joke. A little philosophy joke. Okay. Let's start with sleep because we can easily measure sleep. Let's start with some easy stuff. Why do we sleep? Um, functionally. Okay, remember the, 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 the different levels, the different levels of explanation, approximate, the ultimate. The pr ultimate explanation here is a lot of regenerative stuff things, uh, happens here. So um, you get to release the human growth hormone, for example. Um, <laughs> healing happens when you're asleep. It's like that. Um, it also makes sense to not be active at a certain part of the day because we have night and day. So being adapted to, for example, hunting at a certain time and not hunting at another time, we talked today about vision and how we hunt during the day, so you being able to see in the UV is probably, because we're on the ground, being able to see in the UV is probably not very useful, or infrared is not that very useful. Right? So it all kind of hangs together. And it's interesting that things that are involved in constant darkness don't tend to see there are animals that exist in constant darkness, and they don't sleep. So it tells us that sleep is somehow related to the circadian rhythm that was built into us. Right. So those things hate And that, again, as I said, it makes sense. We've got that idea. That's fun. So functionally, that makes some sense. <laughs> it's interesting. I think the book mentions this. The question is, why are we awake? <laughs> Think about it. If our function on this planet is to, what? It's to pass on our genes. That's really our only function. What's the meaning of life? Passing on your genes. Any hard questions? What's it all about? I mean, it's about passing on your genes. What, that, that's really all that matters biologically, functionally. Um, so why be awake? Why not wake up, I don't know, once a year, may go back to sleep? 
we have there's a lot of animals. Theo talked about this in uh, <laughs> animal behavior last term. They hibernate. Why not do it that way? Basically, except take it to the extreme. <laughs> Why not just wake up, reproduce, load up on food, and go back to sleep? I had friends like this in undergrad. Um, it's basically all me. This is kind of a tough thing to do, typically, uh, because other things are going to evolve. Remember, I said evolution often comes as an arms race. If you're asleep, and unless you're a giant like a bear, it's going to be somebody's going to eat you when you're asleep. And so it makes some sense, functionally, again, to be awake and aware so, first of all, you can fight things off, but also see so you can get food. But it is an interesting question turning it on too. Like, why be awake? Why not just because we're awake most of the time, right? Why not be asleep most of the time? And you remember being like sixteen or seventeen? You, you tried that. Okay. Sleeping to like eleven, twelve, one. Right. Get older, you stop doing that because you just wake up. Oh, good! It's Saturday. I woke up at six. <laughs> But I wanted to sleep in. But you can't, because you're an adult and you have bills to pay, and it just gets on your nerves. See, some of this class, some of these, most of my teaching really is just therapy for me. Um, so sleeping wake is probably not something that's too complicated, it makes some biological sense. Let's think about things that are voluntary versus things that are automatic. When I say voluntary, um, I think most of you, or many of you likely know my stance on free will. You don't have any. Move on. But I can also tell you that when I say voluntary, I mean things that take up cognitive resources, let's say that. I have to think about them. Okay? Most of our behavior is mediated by unconscious cognition. I've seen numbers, people estimate these things, it's kind of a hard thing to estimate. But you see numbers ranging from 90 to 99.9% of our behavior is mediated by unconscious cognition. It's not mediated by things we're planning or doing, it just happens. It's things we've learned very often. But it isn't stuff that we've, we have to take, do we take note of? The other day I talked about how Mums can smell their baby's poop and they recognize it. I, I talked about smelling armpits and detecting people's uh, attractiveness. Yeah. Do you think people actually, I'm sure there are people, but typically people don't walk up to people that they're interested in, but can I smell your armpits for a second? That doesn't happen. There are people like that, I'm sure. There's seven and a half billion of us on this planet. I'm sure there are websites devoted to it. But the point is, generally we don't do that, yet it affects our behavior. So a lot of the unconscious cognition, and some of you who aren't as versed in psychology go, oh, you mean Freud. No, Freud was a dirty old man from Vienna who had a cocaine problem. None of, you, none of your behavior is motivated by wanting to sleep with your mother and kill your father. 
And if it is, call the police. How do you ride a bike? So I this my wife actually literally yesterday. I didn't use ride a bike because we were talking about unconscious cognition. I don't know why. We were also watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine at the same time, but I was watching another TV show on my iPad. And this is still. And I was drinking uh, a Moscow Mule and she was having some wine. This is our house. What's the, what's the boy? And I said to her, how do you drive? I didn't say a bike. I used a car. How do you drive a car? And you can't actually explain that to someone, can you? Once you know how to drive, when you are being taught how to drive, when you're in your driver's head, or when your dad or mom, or in my poor wife's case, my father, was teaching her how to drive, they tell you all those things. But sit down, click the key in, turn the key on, check your blind spot, put your uh, seatbelt on. I, I'm sure I got all that in the wrong order. I don't drive. Push down on the accelerator, go fast. I don't know. All I know about cars is um, the right uh, trigger makes it go, and then you steer with the, the right. I have to do video games. That's all I know. Okay. Now, if you've not made, if you've heard me talk about this stuff before, I, I don't want you to try to answer this question. But if you haven't, how do you turn on a bicycle? You may read this in the book. How do you turn left? How do you turn left on a bike? You turn left. Turn the handlebars left, yeah? No, you'll fall over. You will literally fall. That's the problem. When, our, when we teach our kids, and we, you will all do, well, hopefully now you guys fall over. But when you teach your kid how to ride a bicycle, and you remember learning to ride a bicycle, don't you? And your dad or mom, usually it's your dad holding the seat behind you. Right? And they say, okay, now you're going to have to turn. Just turn the handlebars. Bang! <laughs> because that's not how you turn on a bicycle. Actually, the way you turn is you turn in the opposite direction a little bit and you lean. And there are data like this. In fact, expert cyclists being asked, how do you turn on a bicycle? And they always answer the same way. You just turn your handlebars. And then they show these expert cyclists video from above of them turning, and they go, that's how you turn on a bicycle? Because they don't know, and these are, I'm talking about Olympic-level bicyclists, and they don't know how you turn. And one of the problems we have is when we teach our kids how to ride a bike, we teach them wrong. I taught my son, and it, now he's also 16, Teaching an adult to ride a bike is an entirely different experience. Teaching an autistic adult to ride a bike is a festival. But, um, so he's, he's a big boy, too. He's bigger than me. So he's on his mom's bike, and I've raised the seat up as high as it will go and everything. He's, uh, I've got like this, and we're walking along, going along, going along, and I let go, and of course he falls. But eventually he learns how to turn. And he said, Dad, how do I turn? And the nice thing was, I knew, don't tell him this. I said, just lean a little tiny bit. And the funny thing is, when you do lean like that, when you're told to turn like that, you actually automatically, to stabilize yourself, you turn the opposite direction a little tiny bit. So when you teach your kids to ride a bike, teach them to lean, you don't teach them to just turn. One of the problems with 
It works fine, by the way, on training wheels. Training wheels suck, right? Because you're that will work. <laughs> then you get the training wheels off. And, ah! You fall right over. So this is unavailable to us, and we all know how to ride a bicycle. How do you play a video game? And you never, if you play video games, you like this, your friend comes over and you say, do you want to play, we'll, we'll play NHL 18. And you throw them a controller and they say, how do you shoot? And you go, I don't know. <laughs> Let me look at what I'm doing. I had this experience, and I, I jokingly talked to you the other day about my wife with, with using Netflix on the, on the Xbox, but I literally don't know how to do things. Because to me, they're just automatic. They're not available to, co to cognition. So it was yesterday or two days ago, and I said, just put it back to the TV. How do you do that? Well, first got to go back to the main menu. How do you do that? I don't know. Uh, and I, I'm at, I sort of pantomime doing it. Oh, hit the guide button. This happens, right? We, it's not available to consciousness. So much of our cognition isn't. So some of these things are actually cognitively impenetrable. It's not just that we can't do it without sort of acting. We literally can't do it without thinking of it. Are you referring to like being consciously incompetent and then going to see those No. Oh, eventually that can happen. For example, driving a car. Right. When you first start out, you literally do all that. You do a checklist in your head, if I imagine. Um, but eventually it becomes to the point where you can be going... 130 down to 401, and you're looking at somebody and talking to them, but it's no problem. Right? But if you remember, at first, because that means it's really taking hardly any cognitive resources, but when you first learned to drive, as soon as you got on a four-day highway, you turn the radio off and say, Everybody be quiet! And now you have to do that. You can, like I said, you can drive with one hand. My dad used to drive with one hand at the bottom of the steering wheel going 80 miles an hour. Looking up, fighting with my brother and I in the backseat. Like, play fight. Cigarette stuff. Remember, it's 1972, it's a different time. You ever drive with his knees? Not going 80 on the 401. Oh, okay. But yeah, sure. Yeah. All dads can do that. It's, it's something, oh, except for me, because I can't drive. But all dads can do that. It's part of the thing. First, you sacrifice the goat, and then <laughs> that all happens. But yeah, it's interesting because a lot of this stuff, at the time, so it is cognitively, at the beginning, it's auto, it, it takes effort, then it becomes sort of impenetrable. So a lot of learning, in fact, takes place without awareness. Right? A lot of learning does. Um, classical conditioning takes place without awareness. And this is a very old form of learning. In fact, classical conditioning, yes, Pavlov's talks. So yes, it is, right? Um, classical conditioning takes place without awareness, which shouldn't be surprising to us, us even as humans, um, uh, because it shows up in every animal that's ever been tested. It's older than humans by far. It's older than anything we would probably call consciousness. How do we know this? Well, we can actually... Classically condition people and ask them what the association is between the stimuli, and they start responding correctly before they can detect what the relationship is. You can also classically condition 12-hour-old babies, 24-hour-old babies. 
And I don't care what you say, they ain't doing a lot of thinking. Right? So we have priming and other implicit memory type tasks. Uh, so if I give you a list of words to remember, okay, and one of those words is uh, cough, okay, um, you'll then remember that. That's no problem. That's called explicit memory. But also, if I give you a word fragment, like that, see blank. Blank F, blank E. You are more likely to complete that fragment than you are to complete that one. Also, you brown liquid. So you may very well complete it, but you're more likely to complete coffee because you saw coffee before. And the likelihood of you completing, say, coffee is completely unrelated to you actually remembering coffee as a in recall. So it's called implicit memory. Those things are served by entirely different systems. And they can be isolated neurologically. We're not aware that we're doing that learning's happening. And in fact, even amnesics show totally normal priming and implicit memory of this. Okay. For first language, language learning is implicit. It only becomes explicit when you're older and you're told the exceptions to all the rules. Right? When you start saying go instead of went. Right? When you start saying well, yeah, go instead of went is implicit. The other type of explicit. So it becomes explicit later, but you, 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 you generalize the grammar, that's the sense of generalization, it's code, which isn't, right? it's wrong. What about the controversy between sneaked and snuck? There's a controversy? Yeah, it's actually sneaked, but yeah. everyone says snuck. I've never heard anyone say snuck. Really? Yeah, like, oh, I I've literally heard no. Oh, snuck up on. Yeah, I guess I have to. Yeah, I snuck up on. Not, I sneaked up on. Yeah, yeah. Like, you'll read it in books here and there, yeah. but sometimes you'll read it in a newspaper and it's snuck. Yeah. Like, everyone was deep shit over that. Nice thing about English is there isn't some central group that's deciding what English is. Bad thing about English is there isn't some central group deciding what English are. There are certain advantages to having an identity process and things like that to do with French that just says, these are words, these aren't words. So for your first language, it's it's implicit. It just happens. You literally don't have to sit down with a kid and explain a language to them. They just learn it. We're built to learn these things, right? Okay, now it gets a little ethereal. So awareness, hashtag awareness. Um, I hate that. But just to raise awareness... What are you raising awareness of? Well, I changed my Facebook avatar to a cartoon to raise awareness of child abuse. Oh, yeah, did it? It stopped a lot. You must, you must be very proud of yourself. Um, slacktivism is my least favorite thing in the world. Uh, that's not true. I'm not a fan of Nazism. Um, 
So this is hard to get your head around. So this is the idea of the unity of consciousness and the binding problem. The idea that we put all of our sensory world and all our memorial worlds and everything we've learned together, it's it's unified, you know, like with this unified experience. So seeing and hearing and smelling and your kinesthetic sense, but also everything you know is all put together into one thing. It, it's, it's like, how the hell does that work? When you figure that out, you get a Nobel Prize. Uh, Aristotle said we had what's called a common sense. The word com- common sense doesn't necessarily mean things like wear pants in the morning. What common sense actually originally meant was we have a sense that pulls, pulls all our senses together. It's too bad, Ari, you're wrong. Uh, his friends called him Ari. Uh, but it's a shame because it sounds sensible we have a common sense, but we don't. No one's found one anyway. So it's too bad. Um, with, with humans especially, the key here is visual dominance. We, and a great example of this is if I give you something to eat that is the wrong color, you will find it unpleasant to eat even if I haven't changed the taste of this one. So if I give you mashed potatoes, which is one of those comfort foods, especially the way I make them, which is basically an emulsion of potatoes and butter, four potatoes, half a pound of butter. That's, that's how you make mashed potatoes. It's, I'll send you, anybody wants the recipe, I'll send you. There is a bit of heavy cream involved. But, it's wonderful. It's great. Do with your eyes closed. Dark room. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. Very good mashed potatoes. Turn the lights on, and half of you have mashed potatoes that have been dyed blue. Suddenly they are much less palatable. So suddenly the fact that we see something, and we know, by the way, you know it just tasted good. You're well aware it tasted good. You just tasted it. You taste it again and go, yeah, I'm not that fond of these potatoes all of a sudden. Your rating of their pleasantness actually drops. Makes a lot of sense, by the way, not a lot of blue food out in the world. Or I could buy them brown like shit brown. I don't mean like just sort of like they toasted and somehow. I mean like they look like a turd. Um, you're going to go, yeah, I'm not going to eat that now. That doesn't look like something I want to eat. Looks like poo. What eat that? But it's an emulsion of poo and butter. Um, no, no. So visual dominance is really important with people. That's a nice example. There's a lot of others. So, where does that come from? <coughs> um, it doesn't come from Danny Pavanelli. <laughs> but Danny Pavanelli, so Pavanelli and Kant have this idea that us swinging through the trees <laughs> was an important thing. The fact that we evolved swinging through trees like perhaps Tarzan or perhaps Spider-Man, if you prefer. Do you know what the mirror test I anesthetize you. I put a dot on your head. Paint. And I show you a mirror. And I show you a mirror. If you look at that mirror and see the mirror as a reflection of you, or a reflection of the way life used to be, it screams, nobody. So, 
is uh, lovely. So, if you see it as a reflection, you look at it in the mirror and go, what's the hell is this thing? Now, this works with kids past about two. Before that, you think a kid would show them a mirror? You don't even have to do with a thought, right? Right, you would get They'll look behind the mirror. It's like, where's the kid? There's not the kid back there. After that, they started making faces. They know it's them. With the chimp, they look like, what the hell? With the gorilla, they used to attack the mirror because they're stupid gorillas. They never figure out. They, they, they threat displays and, of course, get freaked out because the other gorillas make exactly the same threat display at the same time. They're easily confused gorillas. And it's interesting because, like, so gorillas fail the test, and gorillas never live in trees. Chimps live in trees. Orangutans pass the test. They spend time in trees. But gorillas don't swing through trees. So it's, the idea here is all about swinging through trees. So other apes basically pass the test. They were apes. And the notion here is that, well, you have a pretty good sense of where you are. You have to when you're swinging through the trees, because if you don't, you fall out of the tree and you die and you don't pass your genes on. So you have to have a pretty good idea of where you are, where you end and the universe begins. Make sense? Wait a sec. We didn't involve any trees. <laughs> no. When the split between us and what becomes chimps happens, we're on the ground. Australopithecus never lives in the trees. Yeah, we didn't live in the trees at all. Aha. Here's a term, acceptation. An acceptation isn't an adaptation. Right? An adaptation is when something evolves to solve a problem. And it increases fit. An acceptation is when there's something already there, and evolution grabs a hold of it and uses it to solve a different problem. The notion here, this is an idea from Stephen Jiggle. The, the idea here is that our ability to swing through trees comes from our common ancestor with the chips. We already have that ability. Except now we're on the ground. We're in a different niche. We're standing up. We're short, hairy apes. Standing up, no, two feet. We're not in the trees anymore. We're on the savannah of Africa. So we can see all the grass. We've got all this gear already built into our, our cognitive system that allows us to know where we are. We also, because we're standing up, instead of being at all fours, we develop this huge heart. We have to because we have to pump blood uphill. No other animal really has to pump blood uphill this our size. 
already got this system. Okay. So now it's evolution grabs a hold of what it already has in front of it and turns that into human self-awareness. It's a nice story. Any questions about that? We can't know that it's true or not, but it's a very nice story. Right? So it's an acceptation. So this brings in the idea of the unity of the self, the idea that I am me, and the rest of the world is out there, and I am separate from the rest of the world. I am conscious. I know that I am me, I am a human, and you are too. Okay. Does that make some sense? It needs to be in a story. Right? We can't know this is true. This is something. But we would predict, if it's the idea of a swinging trees, that certain apes would pass the mirror test and certain apes can't. And Pavanelli and Cantor write about this. And Danny Pavanelli is a very smart man. So, I mean, he, he may be onto something here. Now, one of the things that being a self involves is self-deception. And we deceive ourselves all the time. And in fact, it's probably very adaptive to deceive yourself. Because it makes you do things you would not normally do. No, no, it makes sense to keep doing this. I should keep digging over here for water because I've put a lot of time into it. Which actually is a fallacy, right? You shouldn't keep doing something based on how much effort you put into it. You should do it based on what you get something out. We call that cognitive dissonance, right? So we say things like why is oh, for example, you might say oh, I paid uh $30 for those Yorkshire pudding tins that I ordered on Amazon. It's actually true. They arrived tomorrow. And someone says, well, they were $26 down at the place at the mall. You should have bought them there. Yeah, but I couldn't have to leave my house. Isn't your time worth more than 4 bucks? Couldn't you just go take the bus? No, you're crazy. It's worth me spending the money. Some will say, oh, no, it's worth, I, I spent an extra, when you, two people buy the same, you've got the same car, but very similar cars. Because right. everything now looks just like a Ford Escape. I don't know if you noticed this. All <laughs> cars are Ford Escapes. So somebody will say, yeah, I bought the new uh, Honda CRV. Would you pay for that? Ford Escape plus $4,000. Because that's basically what they cost. I don't think it's Honda CRV. I just know how much these, well, I know how much they cost five years ago. We bought our Ford Escape before everyone had a Ford Escape. It was our idea for all cars. Good. Good. Whatever works. Now, people say, well, yeah, they're um, uh, Japanese. Oh, okay. Good. Japanese make cars. Nobody's argue. Uh, it's worth the extra $4,000. We deceive ourselves all the time to make ourselves feel good. And in fact, in 
DEA, it probably made sense to do this. Because a lot of times in nature, that is a rule of thumb, as a way of like, this is what I'll do, I'll keep doing this, it'll work, eventually. That actually solves the problem. There's data on it. For a short example of this, a short look at this, uh, you can look up a paper by Broadbeck and Broadbeck, 2018, on how we look at how cognitive dissonance is actually sensible evolutionarily. Short paper, thousand words long. It's so fun writing with your kid, too. She's second author of this one. Can't let her be first author of everything. Bullshit. Um, besides, it was, this one was my idea, the last one's right We deceive ourselves all the time. We have what's called a self-serving bias. You know what this, who here takes or has taken social psychology? So you all, so you all basically know more social psychology than me because I haven't. We have a self-serving bias, right? This notion that if we did it, it's probably good. If someone else did it, It's actually pretty sensible to deceive yourself now and then. Here's some examples. I will love you forever. You can't know that! You can't! But when committing yourself to being with one person and one person only for the rest of your life, it's probably sensible to probably deceive yourself and to say, I will never ever love anyone else. Most people are faithful in their relationships. <coughs> but a percentage aren't. Most people go into relationships, they don't go in thinking, well, now that I've got this one figured out, I'll see if I can go find someone else as well. No, they don't. These things happen. I'm sure some people do, and that's fine. And if you're all into that scene, that's cool. Even this, you borrow some money from somebody. And I'm not talking about giant sums of money. Right? I'm talking about five, ten dollars. I'll pay that. Because you don't want to think to yourself, I'm never paying this back. I'm up five bucks. <laughs> but oftentimes that happens, right? You don't do it on purpose. You probably wouldn't <coughs> borrow money from someone if you knew you wouldn't pay the person back. My favorite one, can I borrow your pen? I would say, you just want the pen? Just take the pen. It's a 30 cent thick pen. I get them up in the mail room. Here, have two. When you say, or my favorite, can I borrow a piece of paper? Oh, I want it back after you've written on it? <laughs> no, you just have the damn paper. The thing is, these things are way more convincing to others to make us completely selfish when we believe them ourselves. Yes, I know that's somewhat depressing and perhaps a little cynical. But when you see people get married, they don't say that they're taking their vows, one person's got their fingers crossed. <coughs> or turns around to the, to, 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 to the assembled people and goes, that doesn't happen, right? People believe their wedding vows. 
get marriages right now. I get we get married. We all can, you know what, 40-odd percent of marriages in Canada split. Yet people keep getting married. You probably wouldn't do it if you thought, you know, there's a pretty good chance this isn't going to work out. <laughs> you likely wouldn't be going, you know, why don't we just hang out? Most people don't do that. People do it, it works for them, that's cool. All right, questions about this stuff? Let's move on and talk a bit about motivation and emotion. Hope you got the email today. For some reason, as I said, I skipped. I don't know why this is skipped in the syllabus because I want you to know this stuff. Okay. Who is taking motivation and emotion from Dr. Perlini? Oh, no, who's going to from somebody else? Most of you take it from Dr. Perlini. He teaches it now. Dr. Arthur, he's a ponytail. <laughs> right? Many of us threatening to cut off. <laughs> this is something to do. Again, when I make fun of these people, it's because they're my friends. You just bully them. Yeah, like I can. You just bully. want to sound like, like I can bully anyone. Paul. I can bully Paul because I can run Paul. That's he's an easy thing. target. Yeah, he's an easy target, but he's big, so he's a pretty easy target. But also, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you guys realize, like, we go back, and we, we know what we say about each other because we come back to our offices. You know what I said about you today? Like that, that's a thing. So it's, also, I tell them every time. Yeah, that's fine. I, I honestly don't care. We're friends. Um, okay. The standard model is that motivation energizes behavior. Emotions are combinations of arousal, behavior, and experience. I got no real issue with that. It makes quite a bit of sense, frankly. Um, I guess the question I have, and the question I believe that's raised in the book is, should motivation and emotion be thought of as being separate things? Um, it's kind of like, remember the other day I talked about sensation and perception? How dividing them up is useful taxonomically, but I think as a, I don't know if we biologically divide them up, let's say that. Oh, it was great that somebody asked a question or something, and then Lori ended up listening to the lecture and commenting on the blog. It was kind of fun. I haven't had comments in a long time, so that's fun. Um, so emotion can be thought of as the behavioral response to our goals being advanced or hindered. So that's sort of putting the two together. It's kind of like, as I said, sensation and perception, putting them together. Right? An emotion can guide behavior. This is the way people tend to think of it. And it's, like I said, it's not bad. It's just I don't think dividing them up makes a lot of sense. Just like dividing sensation perception up probably isn't biologically sensible. I'm sure it's, it's definitely sensible as far as the way to study things. It's not like it's a bad idea. Yes? Okay. So... A lot of times people talk about instinct. And I don't know if you know this, but I hate the word instinct. Um, I hate it because it's a great example of the nominal fallacy. 
It's like you've explained something by giving it a name. Oh, why do people... Why do fools fall in love? Uh, <laughs> some of that reference. Uh, why, why do... Why do people like being... Why do you like good food? Why do you like uh, sweet or sweet food? There you go. That's good. But instead. Why do people like the smell of flowers? Anything. Why are you afraid of clouds? Instinct. That all sounds great until you replace the word instinct with the name Steve. <laughs> so all you're doing is giving it a name? Why do you like good food? Well, Steve. Why do you like the smell of flowers? Steve again. What's with the clowns? Steve told us to be afraid of clowns. <laughs> Giving something a name doesn't explain it. And just saying instinct doesn't explain things. Now, saying, why do we like sweet food? Because we need, well, it's functionally sensible. We, our body needs glucose. Oh, that's, that's, that's great. You didn't say instinct. You gave me a mechanism. You gave me a possible way the world works. I've lost so much weight being sick that this old Obama 08 t-shirt, campaign t-shirt, actually fits me. There's an upside knee. So how'd you get fat, Obama? Not instinct. Yeah. Thanks, Obama. Right? You can always say that. Trump's going to make you feel skinny. He's just going to eat all his food. Yeah. Like he weighs 239, by the way. Like he's six foot three, by the way. Oh, I think he's six foot three. Um, I don't think he's two thirty nine. Six foot three. He might be two ninety three. So the first, the other problem I have with instinct is everything needs experience. Things don't just happen in a vacuum, right? So instinct has this implication: it's hardwired, does not changeable. And as I said the other day, I mean. You know, we can't just say something is, quote, genetic or something is environmental. You don't say that, right? So this, when you say something is an instinct, it makes it seem like it's unchangeable. It makes it seem like you're hardwired that way. And it's just not, it doesn't, I don't think it's a fair way to look at behavior. Now, a lot of people say, how many instincts are there is a problem with determining instinct. I don't think that's a big problem. I mean, I... I if you buy into the instinct concept, then you then I guess this is okay. I don't see that as a huge deal. Nonetheless. I know Steve Pinker talks about this in the blank slate, and uh, I do believe the book talks about this as well. Alright. So here's a question. We have biologic do we have biological and social motives? So the question I want to ask you guys who've taken motivation and emotion is, is that the way the world's looked at? I don't think so, right? Like, I think we're, we're beyond that. Okay, well, what do you mean, then? 
Well, I mean, like, are some things like hunger different than association with other people? No, I'm saying, but does the world look at it that way? Well, it's explained by, like, the um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I think... Like, the bottom, the basic... Yeah, and I think the sort of standard social science model approach does say that. Right? There are biological needs, then there are social needs. Like, I'm not going to skip dinner just for attention from friends. Yeah. Yeah. Especially... It's not skipping dinner, it's skipping a meal. Uh, for yeah, your starter. Yeah. 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 Skipping dinner is one thing. Skipping dinner because you're starving to death is an entirely different thing. Yeah. <laughs> what about eating in like social situations even if you're not going to Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the problems with these hierarchy things, right? It's like, what about people who go on hunger strikes for an ideal? I'm not going to eat anymore until the children in Africa. Yeah, or whatever. Right. I'm not eating until there's peace in the Middle East. Well, you're going to be dead soon. Um, yeah. You're going to need some food. Right? I mean, people do that and go on hunger strikes. For ideals that are above these quote, biological things. This is one of the, always, to me, one of the criticisms of the notion that we have these, that, first of all, these things are a hierarchy. I will not deny that, you know, air is pretty important. Most people would do pretty much, it's like, I'm not breathing again until that's nobody's doing that. I refuse to breathe until there's peace in Vietnam. Well, there's been peace in Vietnam since 1975, so, so that's all your breath. See, it worked. Um, oh, would it not be hierarchical in the sense of which portion of the brain is being triggered for that need? Like, wouldn't wouldn't the need to eat override the need to socialize because of where the signal's coming from? Oh, maybe, but I mean, that's... Like I said, I don't think anybody's going to go socialize at the expense of eating when they don't have... when they haven't eaten for two weeks. Yeah, so wouldn't it make sense that they are, in a sense, stages? I don't maybe? think it's... What I'm saying is I don't think it's nearly <coughs> as clear a hierarchy as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Okay. Yeah. But one is more powerful than the other. Oh, it may be sometimes, yes, depending on your, your state yes. at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, let's think of things like jealousy. That's a social thing, really, isn't it? Because it's about. I feel bad about that person and what they're accomplishing. Call that social emotion, I guess we could. What about envy? Sort of similar, right? Or what about shame? Feeling bad about what you do or something you've done in right. One of the interesting things here is when you look at, say, sexual jealousy, is that as a rule, yeah, on, out, 
average, and we're talking about straight men and straight women, but on average, women are more jealous of, let's call it, emotional infidelity. In other words, their partner becoming emotionally very close to a person of the opposite side. Then, men are. Men are way more sexually jealous about actual sex than women are. I'm not saying women like when their boyfriend or husband goes and has sex with another woman. I'm not saying that men love it when they see that their girlfriend or wife or whatever is closer with someone than they are with that person. What I'm saying is the let's go with the valence would perhaps be the word. The strength of how jealous someone feels depends on their sex. And this is often leads to this disconnect where women and men talking to each other about something and then the guy says to his partner, which is friends. Seriously. It's not like we're sleeping together. As if that would matter. It matters some. On the other hand, oh, it's just meaningless sex. That's not something men are convinced by as much as women. Again, I don't think anyone likes it. But there are people that are polyamorous and fine and friends like that. They're great, whatever. As a rule. There's an interesting emotion that we have that is thought of as being so and that so that therefore, I don't know. I don't think of jealousy as necessarily being something social. That sounds like something that's pretty biological. There's a biological component there. I think of shame and you think of, well, that's obviously something that's doesn't seem biological, except that one of the things, one of the cool things about humans is we're exceedingly social animals. There's nothing as social as us in the among the apes for sure, among the mammals for sure. There's nothing as social as right? We're the most social of all mammals, easily. We're probably the most social of any thing with a backbone. When you've heard it. That's probably fair to say. Live in groups, families stay together for long periods of time, generational family, uh, groups, things like that. Okay, sure. I don't know that other animals experience shame. If you're a chimp throwing poop at each other, I don't think you feel a lot of shame. Just saying. Humans, we do, right? We feel a lot of shame in ourselves. I know when, I, when I've talked to students who, for example, have done poorly on a test, seriously, they will come to me and say, I don't really feel ashamed of myself. It's like, it's okay. You're not here to impress me. You're just well as you can. Don't feel bad about it. <coughs> but students will actually feel bad that I saw a bad test of theirs. Okay. 
thing is, one of the th- what's what's going to keep humans so social? We're not all. I know I, I mentioned before how we're very interrelated, but one of the things that probably keeps us social, and is shame is probably very adaptive. I don't want to do something that will embarrass me, to make me look bad in the group, because then the group will not help me. It's so it's actually selfish. It's the notion of this will affect quote altruism. There probably isn't any altruism, but you're less likely to be nice to me. Lend me five bucks. Yeah. I've done something horrible to a group. Hmm. Wow. So even these two things that seem very, quote, social emotions, they're just social. So, so Dave, are you saying that altruism is more like a, it's like a selfish? Yeah. Selfishly driven? Yeah, of course. Like no, I think that it, everything's selfishly driven. Um, <laughs> but it's selfish in that if I do something nice for you, you'll do something nice for me in the future. Yeah, what if there's no possibility of return on the favor? Then I'm less likely to do something nice for you. I mean, what if you still do? Well, oh, people do. But you're less likely to. Um, there's some beautiful data on this. Like, for example, what's the ultimate thing, to, ultimate altruistic thing to do? Well, it would be for me to give blood, wouldn't it? <coughs> I am giving literally biological resources to a stranger. I don't even, I'm never going to meet. What, well, but everybody gets cookies. And I can, go, I can go get cookies. I can go home and make cookies. But it's free cookies. I'm not free. You have to pay with blood. <laughs> Why would you give blood, right? And it's like, people often thought, well, that's the ultimate in altruism, giving blood. It's not really because you might need it. Eh. What do you mean I might need it? I don't have to give it. The rest of you saps are out there giving blood. I don't have to give blood to get blood. It's not like they look it up. They don't go, oh, Broadbeck never gave any blood. Well, I guess we're not going to give him any during this. He's doing an accident. Screw him. He's never given blood. They go, get Broadbeck blood. Whatever my blood type is, B something, B negative. I think is my blood type. Um, no, but you know it's interesting. Um, people are more likely to give blood when they're given a little badge that says "I give blood." It's a signal to the rest of the world. Look at how important I am. I give away biological resources to strangers. Me, me. Um, I hope not. <laughs> there are things I don't want to know. I don't want to know if someone's doing that. Look, do that. That's great. Childless couples getting kids. That's wonderful. Uh, don't be telling me you're doing it. <laughs> Disgust is a fun one, a fun emotion. We talked with this the other day. <coughs> we talked about this the other day. So let's look a little bit at disgust. So disgust is universal. This has been tested in every 
set of people who have been asked about they've shown deception. And it's the same kind of thing. It tends to be about sour things and things to do with poop. The function is basically to get nasty stuff out of your mouth. But the face just itself, you know, literally your, your tongue pushes things out of your mouth and your pursed your lips to stop things, more things from going in. Though through learning, we find different things disgusting. And this makes some sense that there is this flexibility because there is a lot of flexibility in what is bad for you depending on your ecology. So depending on where you live, something may or may not be bad. It may not make sense to learn. You would want to hardwire in X, Y, or Z is bad for you because you may never run into X, Y, or Z. Dave, what about how people from different regions have like different palates? Like some people really love spicy food, and then other people can't handle it. That's that's a that's a matter of experience. Oh. People are disgusted by spicy food, like by hot food, they so much as like it burns their mouth. Don't have a tolerance. Yeah, burns your mouth. Because some people like the burn. Like oh, sometimes, yeah. if I'm getting something spicy, I want it to feel like I'm dying. Yeah, yeah, me too. Okay. Me too. I mean, I, I like I tone down food in our house so much. No one else wants to eat something that hurts. <laughs> it's like I, I want if I'm eating like if I'm eating Indian food, I want to know I want it punching me in the face. Yeah. I also want to have all the flavor that folks understand me. I'm yeah. not just eating something for oh that's the ghost pepper challenge. Uh, I just want to eat some. I, I like hot food. Not everybody does that, right? But that's a matter of experience. And I can look at the experience of my family and I can compare the child that I had the food I ate to the child that my wife had the food that she ate as a kid. And the food that I ate was way more spicy than the school because of a lot. I grew up in a family of weird food world. But yeah, so this is one of these things where it's going to depend on your ecology what you find disgusting. Though. That's the difference. People don't like spicy food. You'll hear people say that, ah, it's a little bit hot for me. But they don't go, oh my God, it's disgusting. They don't have the look on their face like they're smelling a, a, a plate of farts. <laughs> a plate of farts. So, this is always one of those cases when I hope the president of the university doesn't walk by. No, good. Okay. So, we tend to hook it up to things. We tend to learn that a disgusting thing is, for example, anything to do around dead people, dead animals. Or, and you know what? That makes a lot of sense because you can get sick from all those things. So that's the, the hook discussed up that way. The cool thing about the facial expressions in this woman from the 1970s showing all these facial expressions is that things like fear, anger, happiness, disgust, and surprise, the facial expressions are the same everywhere. And these are not in the same order as that, but you know what, what, what those are. You can look at it and tell. This is Ekman's work, Paul Ekman, 
um, going back into the 1970s. And he went around to people all over the world, all kinds of different cultures, Western cultures, Pacific Islanders, who were pretty isolated, uh, all kinds of different cultures, and said, can you make the face if, and he'd give us a scenario, and they'd make the face, and it's always the same. No one ever goes when they're happy. <laughs> so that's not the happy face. Right? So you can see our friend here, our 1970s woman, from one of Ackman's papers. What's that one? That's disgust, right? What's this one? Of these here. What's that one? That's happiness. What's this one? That's surprise. What's that one? That's sadness, right? Oh, sorry, yeah. You're right, that's not there. Yeah, but that's, and that's sadness, sorry. In fact, you ever seen the TV show Lie to Me? Remember that show? Where the guy was always detecting people's expressions, and that was his big thing, and then he had a great big company that did that, somehow they made money. It's all based on Paul, I think, who didn't ever do that, by the way. I... I it's like saying, this show's all based on the career of Dave Broadcast because there's a bird in it. Uh, it's <laughs> but it's based on the ideas are from Ecclesville. So these things are the same everywhere. So, the interesting thing is here, chimps make universal expressions. So not just people but our closest relative, the chimp, makes expressions. By the way, this one here that looks like happy, smiley chimp, that is scared, shitless chimp. <laughs> no, seriously. Whenever you see, if you see older movies where they have chimps, you don't see a lot of chimp movies anymore because of, you know, what with the animals and not being mean to them. But it used to be that the way they'd make them look like chimps were smiling is they just scared them a lot and then start trouble. Okay, action! And behind the camera, there's a guy about to throw a spear at the chip, right? Or he's holding the chip baby with a gun to his head. <laughs> I don't know. How do you scare a chip? I got your kid right here. Are you scared, chip? Feeling lucky, chip? <laughs> Go ahead, chimp, make my day. So that's, if Clint Eastwood was directing, that would be a line that would be used. Things are getting very odd. We're going to have to stop shortly because I'm now going to go into a whole thing about Clint Eastwood directing chimp movies. But! <laughs> so these expressions actually... And, um, Desmond Morris. Yes. Who's an animal behavior slash... Slash this kind of early days evolutionary psychologist has talked about how he thinks the human smile evolved. Because the chimp, I'm very frightened look, is very similar to the hey, how's it going look. Morris's notion, but Morris, uh, Morris's notion is that this is me saying, I'm afraid of you. And you're going, I'm afraid of you! So we can all be friends. Again, kind of like the Pavanelian Cat thing, it's a nice story. I'm not sure I buy it, but it's a really nice story. 
But it is interesting that chimps have universal facial expressions, and so do their closest relatives, humans. Right. What other function could it serve, though? It's certainly communication. Like facial yeah. expressions are communication. I don't think it, it, the fact that they're universal shows their communication. But also, the disgust thing has one. For example, pushing stuff on your mouth. Yeah, like babies show it. Babies don't show happiness. But the disgust or, or fright and all that stuff early on. What they, the one the one facial expression babies show literally uh, as soon as they're born is disgust. They literally will show that being a minute old and just put lemon juice in their mouth. Is that less of an expression and more of an action to get it out of your mouth? Well, I mean, where does one begin and the other end? I mean, they're they're, they're still. And they're also universal. That's the thing, right? Like no culture in the world goes <laughs> with somebody dies, right? <laughs> Unless it's your mortal enemy, and that mortal enemy, of course, is Clint Eastwood, who's holding the chips. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a little loopy with the Clint Eastwood chip jokes. Somebody make a Photoshop thing of Clint Eastwood. I'll put it on the blog then. But if Clint Eastwood's holding a baby chip in the gun, can someone do that? If you can do that, I will put it on the podcast blog. You don't get any extra points, but I mean, I'm just saying, do it, and I'll give you credit. You get a badge. You get a badge, This is happy here. Right? This is scared. This is a threat display. I don't know what the top left one is. I thought the first one. I think the top left one is you're still going to shave. Yeah, putting on eyeliner can be that. So it's interesting because these facial expressions show emotion. They're universal. They have. They must have a function. The communication part is one thing. Disgust. We can tell what the function is because you can see that it's getting stuff. You know, it actually works. Right.
listening to the lecture um all of the audio is available of course on itunes or whatever podcatcher you're using just search for da- uh, dr dave broadbeck's uh, psychology lectures in algoma university which is the most ungainly title ever uh these are released under a sh- uh, uh, creative commons copyright share like 3.0 canada uh you can't use these for commercial purposes um you feel free to share them uh and feel free to mash them up any way you want but if you do that that means i get to do the same thing with your stuff Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music; they're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.